Hey, welcome to New Hope Underground. That's right, we're getting ready to uh, celebrate Easter coming up this weekend. Well, I prefer to say Resurrection Weekend. Anyway, hey, so glad that you chose to tune in today. And I hope you're expecting this anyway. Um, I did announce on Sunday, uh, during my sermon on Sunday, that I wanted to do an episode of just kind of getting into a little bit more of the triumphal entry information that especially comes out of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 11. And there's just so much really good stuff there. And if you're kind of nerdy like me, uh, when it comes to just some of the background information, I mean, it's just so it's just so cool. It kind of opens things up, at least for me, as I am reading and studying through uh, different uh, the, the writings of lots of different people who are a lot smarter than I am. And I'll, I'll give you some of those sources, too, if you're interested in, in books or uh, like to read different things. Um, I can give you some of the sources I've been using as I try to synthesize uh, synthesized this sermon. And I kind of went with this this point that the triumphal entry was more atriumphal than it was triumphal. I actually got that term uh, from a guy. Uh, I'm going to see if I can actually find it here real quick. Uh, that wrote an article in the Journal of Biblical Literature, uh, which was really interesting. And, I mean, he basically was making the case of it being atriumphal. But the more I studied a lot of other people, a lot of the go-to commentaries that I use, uh, people that are really, really smart about things, um, what I found out is that they all pretty much agreed. You know, I mean, there's there's some... There's some differences here and there, but for the most part, agreed that the idea of the triumphal entry wasn't as uh, triumphal. Um, Brent Kinman is the name of the guy I was talking about. He wrote an article called uh, Prussia, Jesus, uh, A Triumphal Entry and the Fate of Jerusalem. And his, he was basing out of Luke 19. Most of my, my work has been done out of Mark 11. But uh, the, the triumphal entry story is in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And kind of where I ended up was this, is basically that I'm not so sure the people, um, I think there was a, I do think there was a swelling of people, you know, cheering Jesus on as he came into Jerusalem. Don't get me wrong. I just think there were people like pilgrims that came with him from Jericho on the the road from Galilee, as opposed to just lots of Jerusalemites. And I'm not saying that some Jerusalemites didn't come out, because they did. Some of them heard of the story, John, the Gospel of John says it, some of them heard the story about the raising of Lazarus, which was in Bethany, which was the Mount of Olives, uh, which is where this kind of takes place from the Mount of Olives to to Jerusalem. He does not actually enter the city on a donkey. Um, he kind of, you know, it's kind of in a bedroom community of Bethany and Bethphage, Bethphage which we believe were right there on the Mount of Olives or on the slope of the Mount of Olives. <clears throat> and he made his way in towards Jerusalem, but did not actually enter with the donkey, but so that's why I said, hey, I wonder how triumphal it is. I wonder what much, how much of an entry it really is. <laughs> and I just took that kind of literally and kind of joking around. But um, the reason we call it this, though, is because it really was it really was triumphant. I mean, overall, I, mean, I say a triumphal. I guess, and I think this is what uh, Brent Kinman meant, too, was that um, it was not triumphal in the sense of that everybody got it. Everybody, you know, all, all the Jewish people at the time were, were cheering him on as the Messiah, Necessarily, I think I think there were people that were definitely doing that uh, and recognized him. Uh, his, and, but I just don't think it was 
as critical, I guess, as what we might think or have we, we have in our heads maybe, at least the way I was raised in understanding that anyway and not saying that anybody specifically told me that, but it just seems like that when you hear the stories. So to be kind of faced with this idea that it wasn't as triumphal as I thought from a human standpoint um, was kind of interesting. And so I want to give you some other ideas that were kind of behind that and that just I couldn't fit everything to the sermon of course, but one uh, uh, kind of overall, I wanted to read this quote by name a uh, guy by the name of Robert Robert Deffenbaugh. To re- basically, he, he he was claiming the kind of the same thing that that if um, if the people that were accepting Jesus as the Messiah at that time, a lot of them maybe have had the idea of more of a political uh, political type of of king, the exact thing that. You know, and more of a nationalistic king like David, that exact thing that Jesus' kingdom was not about. And he, he here's a thing what he's, uh, he said to receive their kind of Jesus is to reject God's kind of king. This apparent reception is then, in reality, a rejection. And that's basically to kind of sum up what I was, where I was trying to go with the sermon, was trying to get us to understand that um, there, there was kind of, in a way, a rejection of the true Jesus, of who he really is, of the kingdom that he was coming to bring, that he did come to bring, that he was bringing, that he, uh, kind of like what he said about the disciples when they were questioning, some of the Pharisees were questioning the disciples about why they didn't fast. And he said, well, why would they fast when the bridegroom is with them? In other words, the kingdom is here, it's now. And um, because Jesus is here and is now. And I'm not so sure people got that. And, but I do think there were some people who really did understand he was and thought he was the Messiah. I don't think that it was just like three or four people just kind of saying Hosanna underneath our breath or anything like that. I think we're talking about a lot of people, and I think there were. But I also think there's some interesting things about this story that we need to bring up. One of my favorite uh, takeaways from this, uh, in the, and I mentioned it in the sermon, was talking about. Um, and if you haven't had a chance to listen to the sermon, you can go to our newhopechurch.cc, click on, click on watch now or watch and watch last Sunday's sermon, which was April, um, gosh, time's going by so fast, April 2nd, sorry, <laughs> April 2nd. So, and um, for our Palm Sunday service. And, but basically, one of my favorite things was, was reading about how there's a direct connection for me anyway when you look at First Kings chapter 1 and the actual anointing of Solomon, putting him on a mule, Zadok the high priest anointing him with the crowds going crazy. And, it was, and here's the son of David, uh, Jesus, who's now on a, on a colt and you know donkey colt and walking uh, into the, um, into, towards Jerusalem for that final time. But he goes into the temple verse 11 of 1 through 11 and Mark 11. When he goes into the temple, Mark says he just looks around and leaves. And we'll talk about that here again a little bit. But uh, just really anticlimactic, it seems like. It's not what, because that would have been the place he would have been anointed by Zadok, the priest. Zadok, uh, in the modern time of Jesus anyway, the word Sadducee means Zadok or sons of Zadok or what you want to, you know, what a, there's a strong connection to Zadok. So the Sadducees were the ones that, really stirred the crowds to yell crucify. So the chief priests, were the, a lot of the Sadducees were chief priests. And so when you, they were the temple priest. And so they were the ones that 
that really uh, ended up, you know, crucifying Jesus. So they didn't anoint him, that's for sure. So that direct comparison to 1 Kings chapter 1 is really interesting to me, 32 through 40 of 1 Kings 1, the anointing of Solomon. Uh, we also find out, um, as we kind of make our, I'm, I might be all over the place, I'm just going to warn you right now, because I'm I'm just kind of looking at my notes and taking through some things, uh, and then I'll, then I'll give you some resources here at the end, but might be back and forth, but because I'll forget something, I'm sure, and come back. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of I'm trying to go through uh, the text one through eleven. In fact, I tell you what, let's read that together real quick, so you know exactly what I'm referring to. There are a few passages here that we're going to need to uh, to make sure that we read together. That's for sure. Uh, but um, here, let me let me pull it up. Mark eleven, and then, now the, this is the English Standard Version. Now they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, and at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Now this is interesting. I want to kind of work my way through the text and tell you some things maybe I didn't get a chance to t- talk about on Sunday. There are some people, quite a few people actually, writers that I wrote, that connected this verse, because Mark does seem to go into this whole thing quite a bit with the colt. And there's quite a bit here about the colt and the donkey. Uh, other gospels actually say there's two. You know, you get the mother donkey and the colt donkey, and so why did they take two? It would actually, it would make sense. He would ride the the colt, but um, the mother donkey might go with it to keep the colt calm and everything. So they, it, it would make sense. But uh, Mark didn't really get into all that because his emphasis was the colt that Jesus was set on, and. That's significant because a king would not be able to ride an animal that someone else had ridden. So this is this is very royal in that regard. But there's a couple of things you need to note about this cult thing. Um, this untie it and bring it. You'll find this cult tied up. And Mark goes into this. And a lot of people bring this all the way back to Genesis chapter 49. Uh, Genesis 49 is actual messianic uh, type of passage that comes from uh, when Jacob was blessing uh, his sons in the long speech that he gives there in verse 11 of Genesis 49, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine. And now we, I, I don't know, it's, it's so hard when you're talking about very poetic type sections of scripture uh, to to really uh, ascertain, like I'm just sitting here reading it, you and I are reading it, and we're just not, well, I don't know if my mind would instantly go to, well, that's a foreshadowing of the triumphal entry or this cult that Jesus sat on. But the people who are a lot smarter than me, uh, quite a few of them brought that up and said, yeah, there's a connection there that's very messianic. And so th- this is intentional. And not only that, but Jesus is the one setting this up. This is what's interesting. Jesus uh is the one talking to his disciples. He sends the disciples out. He gets the colt. In the other Gospels, Mark doesn't mention this, but the other Gospels mention that he does this intentionally to uh, fulfill the prophecy, Zechariah 9.9. Let's read that. So Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I mean, so he said, the other Gospels are saying, uh, so I think it's uh, John and Matthew, if I remember right, they directly quote that passage. In fact, I think John actually adds a little bit from Isaiah as well. But basically, messianic uh, 
prophecies. And you see, Jesus is doing this. This is the reason why Jesus set this up, is basically what it's. In other words, some would say that there was a divine thing going on here because he went through the whole thing with the cult, and he te- he says, listen, you're going to find this cult tied up. You're going to find him, and then you're going to, we might untie him, and somebody might say something to you, so give him this kind of password. <laughs> the Lord needs it, and, and you can go. And what's interesting is some people say, well, that was a... Um, that was a divine supernatural. He knew what was going to happen. These aren't people he had met before or whatever. But the, the truth is we really don't know. This could have been set up ahead of time. This could have been, uh, you know, the password. Maybe the Lord needs it, uh, and that's it. So um, this whole thing with the donkey is very, very royal. It's very um, prophetic. And so Jesus is doing this on purpose. And he's with a, a crowd of pilgrims coming in from the Passover as they're shouting and so forth. And, then, and so... Um, I don't want to ignore the the idea that, and I'll make sure everybody understands that. I'm not ignoring the idea that there were people who thought of him as the Messiah. I mean, they definitely did. And people were shouting. I just don't think it was as overwhelming as we might think it might have been with the whole city. Uh, Because I think he would have been probably arrested right then. You know, I mean, if it had that kind of messianic overtone or he's the king uh, coming in. and um, But I do think that he definitely people were shouting that. They're screaming. I mean, the other one of the other gospels, as we mentioned on Sunday, says that the Pharisees uh, told him to shut his disciples up, the people that are following him, and the things that they're saying. He said, "Well, if I shut him up, the stones will cry out." Meaning, it's the truth. It is the truth. So, what are you going to do? <laughs> also, there's another passage in Zechariah that a lot of scholars point to, which is Zechariah fourteen um, four, and that says this being that's being fulfilled on this day as well, which is on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split into two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward, the other half southward, and you shall flee to the valley of any mountains. And it goes on talking about earthquakes and all this. I mean, you're like, well, how does that, what in the world does that have to do with this passage? Well, he's, he's on the Mount of Olives. I'm not so sure that, I mean, I find this uh, interesting because Zechariah is laying out here, overall, Zechariah is interesting because it's laying out this Messiah who is humble, Messiah who is a shepherd, not not the Messiah who's the warrior. And I think that's exactly what we find here in the triumphal entry is Jesus comes in humble. He comes in ready to suffer. He doesn't come in as a political giant or as a warrior who's going to fight off the bad guys, but instead he's going to take care of the real evil, if you will. Um, so let's let's go ahead and go back to the passage. So they got the donkey thing. Um, they went away, found a colt tied at the door, and guess what happened? Everything exactly as he said happened. So I won't read all that, but if you go through verses four uh, down through uh, four and five, um, in verse six it says that they told him what Jesus said, the password, and then they let him go. And, and, that, and that's interesting too because. Uh, because he says, tell them the Lord has need of it. And that's interesting. They would use the word Lord. In the Greek, it's a kurios. And he uses this, this word Lord. I mean, that means master. Some argue back and forth. Does this mean he's telling them that he's God? Uh, because that word is associated with God. Uh, or is he telling them that he's like Lord in the sense of like owner? He's the owner of all things. And my, I guess I want to say, well, I think we're splitting hairs, but it sounds like to me it's all of the above. <laughs> that Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm God and I own all things. Tell them I need it. 
because this is, you know, and, and they let and they let it go. So verse uh, 7, they brought the colt to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches. Now, we see Palm Sunday and palms, and I think I said Sunday, that they come from John. The Gospel of John says that they were definitely palm branches. Uh, Mark uses the term leafy branches. And uh, there's a lot of confusion on this, more than I thought with a lot of people, simply because they... Some people are saying that the gospel writers are actually not doing this chronologically, that this might have taken place in the fall during another festival where they would wave these branches. Um, but John is really adamant. He, can, he tends to think, you know, all this, he tends to say all these things happened in the, during that week. And not only that, but during this triumphal week leading up to the cross, the Passion Week, we also have him cleaning out the temple, which makes sense with Mark eleven eleven. Now, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think that uh, this is just Darren talking, but I think for everything I've read, uh, it just doesn't. I think it makes sense that this happens during this week. Now, why are they waving branches that seemingly belong to another festival? Uh, I've read other places where Passover was not unusual. It was not unusual for people to still sing the songs that they sang, wave the branches that they waved. To have the branches would be a part, it's part of the celebration. But to put the branches down in front of the colt, to put their coats down in front of the colt, this was kind of a, hey, you're the king kind of thing. I mean, you look at, uh, there's a, in Second Kings chapter uh, 9, around verse 13, the king Jehu, uh, that's what they did. They kind of laid out a red carpet of their garments for him to walk across or for, and so forth. I'm not, I'm not so sure this is exactly the same thing. I'm not saying this is rel- you know, relevant to Jehu, but I'm trying to, trying to give you an example of like, some events in the Old Testament to kind of show you how they treated ancient kings. And that was true with lots of different writers, not just the Bible, with talking about different history of ancient kings. So definitely people are putting coats on the ground, and there's waving of the palm branches, and they're shouting, Hosanna, which means literally, uh, well, I'll tell you what, let me read it first. They spread their cloaks out, uh, the leafy branches they cut from the fields, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So he's surrounded by people. They're shouting. I don't think this is like a small crowd, and I don't think this is like real quiet. I just don't necessarily think it's overwhelming, like I said. Um, it's definitely not brought up at his trial that he was claiming messiahship in that moment. They were looking for things to nail him on, and they never used that. So apparently they didn't. It wasn't necessarily something that just uh, enthroned the whole city. But there were a lot of people, and it was significant, and uh, a lot of people that followed him and knew him uh, as well. But some of the, it's in, it is interesting, their song, some say, well, look, Hosanna, uh, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I mean, they're talking about the Messiah. Yes, they are, but it was it was common uh, to sing this song from one Psalm 118. If you look at Psalm 118, we're going to look at verse 25. I think it is here. I want to go ahead and read that. Here it is. Uh, Save us, we pray, O Lord. Now, that's what Hosanna means. Hosanna is kind of like hallelujah. You know, it's kind of a term that they would shout out. Maranatha. Those are words we use that mean, you know, hallelujah, I think means praise, if I get it right. And then, uh, I may be wrong there, and someone can correct me. Please please correct me. And then also, um, Maranatha means, you know, come Lord Jesus. Uh, Hosanna means save us, we pray, O Lord. So Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, we pray, 
O Lord, we pray, give us success. This is Psalm 118, verse 25. Here's verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Sound familiar? We bless you from the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. I mean, this is really, really cool. But uh, at the same time, we find that this is very common. You know, as, as the pilgrims are walking into Passover to sing this song, some of them may have meant it totally towards Jesus, whereas some of them might have been caught up in the moment and just sang the song because it was traditional. And they are, they are talking about a Messiah, but not necessarily thinking that Jesus is that Messiah. That's very possible, anyway. And one, one way to understand that is because the way Mark writes it, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. The coming kingdom. Hear that? You see, if they thought it was Jesus, wouldn't the words be, the kingdom is here now? Now, that may be splitting hairs, but I don't, I'm not so sure it is. Uh, now, but I'm, I'm not saying, I'm saying all these words are very true of Jesus. I'm just not, I'm saying I'm not so sure everybody thought they were. Uh, and maybe they're singing the song because it's a common song at this time, of ushering in the Messiah. And some, a lot of them probably did totally believe that that's who Jesus was. So um, there was really no announcement, like in Jerusalem, that the Messiah had come. In fact, when we find when he enters Jerusalem, what happens? He walks in, and now the crowds are kind of gone. They've dissipated really fast. I mean, now he's walking into the temple with his 12, and it says he looks around the temple and leaves. Verse 11, he entered Jerusalem, went into the temple. When he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. With the twelve, so wow, the crowd dissipated pretty fast. At least that's what it seems like. And he just looks around, and, and I find this interesting. Some writers said that um, that basically uh, he visited the temple to look around because he was he was doing reconnaissance. You know, when you do recon mission, you go out and look at something, spy on it, so that you can get information when you're getting ready to attack it kind of thing, before you attack it. And if you see when he comes back, the next day we have the cursing of the fig tree, you have the cleaning of the temple, cleansing of the temple. So he goes back into the temple to cleanse it. So it's like some say what he was doing right there is he's looking around the temple and leaves. Um, It's very anticlimactic, but at the same time, maybe he's checking it out to see, hey, I'm going to come back later and take care of some things. I want to see what's going on here because this isn't good. So I think that's very possible. I love what Ben Witherington writes when it comes to this idea of, of uh, Zechariah. He says, Mark purposely depicts Jesus as deliberately setting out to fulfill the Zechariah vision of Messiah, which is a picture of a shepherd rather than primarily a warrior Messiah, and a humble one at that. That's exactly what I had said a little bit earlier. Um, that, that's, I think it's very, very important for us to see that, if that makes sense any sense uh, to see, I think it makes a lot of sense, you know, <laughs> that we see exactly what Jesus is doing. The kingdom has already, already there. People just haven't recognized uh, that as his kingdom and I, that the kingdom has come. And, um, and then this, um, then they pretty soon within that same week, they're yelling, you know, Jerusalemites are yelling, um, crucified the direction of the Sadducees, no intent on anointing him, anything. So, um, I hope 
and uh, pray this has done you some good. There's, I'll only give you some of the books I've been using in case you're just interested, because I know people ask me from time to time, and I would love to be able to, you know, I, I think it's really important that, you know, you learn how to study the Scripture. If, you, if you're if you interested, we're doing a Old Testament series. Um, we're using the Soma Method, uh, to, and I'm going to be teaching the Soma Method along with it a little bit, so you don't have to have any previous knowledge or anything. Just show up. Um, but we are, we're going to be doing some Old Testament stories starting Tuesday, uh, right after Easter here, so April 11th. And it'll go for four weeks, April 11th, April 18th, April 25th, and then uh, May 2nd, I believe. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to look that up because I always get confused get confused about dates. But yeah, May 2nd. May 2nd will be the last one. Child care is provided. It starts at 6.30 p.m. here in the cafe. We'll only go for about an hour and 15 minutes. And uh, we'll be going through some Old Testament stories, and it's just going to be like. And the idea of it is to try to help you learn how to study the Bible, not just uh, listen to me, so or anything like that. But even though that's not what we're doing on this podcast, <laughs> but uh, here you go. Here, here are some books that you might want to check out when it comes to the Gospel of Mark, in particular, looking at the Triumphal Entry. I I, I love commentaries, um, and so I use several of them. The main ones I use. Uh, the Gospel of Mark is one but written by R.T. France, as in the nation, France. Another one is written by Ben Witherington III. Uh, that's a really good one called the Social Rhetorical Commentary of, of Mark. Uh, another another key one I use is written by a lady by the name of Morna Hooker called The Gospel According to St. Mark. I also use another one by William Lane called The Gospel of Mark and one by... Uh, another one by Robert Gundry, which is very, very, very deep. And I would say uh, Gundry seems to be um, not so sold as the other ones are on the idea that this wasn't a huge deal. I think he he wants to make sure we understand. And I think he does a good job of like making us understand, no, there were a lot of people that thought he was the Messiah. So let's not get away from that. And I think that's good. Uh, but anyway, the, those are some really good books. I also, like I said, look um, look for through some uh, journal articles you can kind of kind of google and and find some journal articles but just be careful find out what sources you're using but those are the main the main sources i use when it comes to when it comes to mark and and the study for this triumphal entry hey thank you so much for tuning in i hope this did you some good thanks for listening to new hope underground we're going to be back uh, with uh, some interviews here very soon uh, just hearing some testimonies of some people and how Jesus has changed their lives here on New Hope Underground. I hope you tune back in. Have a great day.